Welcome everyone to our Friday night milk and meat live stream. I'm Sean Griffin. This is Kingdom in Context. And tonight we're going to be talking about Enoch, the patriarch from before the flood. This will be the uh, seventh from Adam, be the, the son of Jared, be uh, the father of Methuselah. This guest guy's unique character. There's a quite a bit of, of discussion about him in scripture. In fact, he's got you know entire compilation called First Enoch. Um, as well as multiple mentions in the regular canon of 66 that we're familiar with here in the United States. And he is also got a ton of information about who he, about what he could be or what he could have become uh, that has become myth and lore and legend uh, amongst different, different people groups and different sort of organizations across the world. But as from a biblical standpoint, that's what we're going to look at tonight is who was this character that we call Enoch or Hanak depends on, you know, how you want to say the Hebrews. So everyone is in the chat looking like they're already having a good time. Uh, thank you for being everybody. Just a quick shout out to Vicki Lott, NEG, James Carter, Donna Flinky, uh, David Shearer. Welcome back, brother. Thanks for helping us out at mod. And then Carla Malberg is here. Unbelievable productions. Carolyn Begner for those seeking April Mendoza, blue doves, Bobby Moe, search the truth, Rita McAvoy, Samantha B. Shang Sun is back. All right. Thanks for being here, everybody. And James Henry and Clayton Linhart, Donna Yeagers, um, Jean Jajanu 84, Yanyanu 84. Sorry. Happy Sabbath, everybody. If you're celebrating Sabbath, welcome, or, you know, hopefully it's a, it's a day of rest for you. That's what it's intended to be. And if you're not, you know, may you enjoy your weekend. But uh, we here at Kingdom in Context, we highly encourage believers in Yeshua to keep the commandments of God because that's what we feel the Messiah taught us to do. That's part of our discipleship with him. And one of those commandments is taking just a day to rest, right? He calls them his Sabbaths. It's pretty simple. So we thank you guys for uh, joining us tonight as we kick off a unique, a unique video tonight, because I think, I think I'm going to make a lot of people mad tonight, but at the same time, I got to tell the truth, right? I got to tell the truth of, as far as what I'm researching and learning and knowing but ultimately, um, be sure to put all your all your angry comments in the chat or in the or in the comment section below. And in fact, if you learned anything tonight, please like, share, and subscribe to this channel, and that helps us grow because we're we um, are seeing a lot of indicators that we're being suppressed by YouTube, so that we're not able to grow at a normal pace and reach more people. And that's our goal, right? Is to reach people with the truth. That's why we spend so much time digging into the scriptures, trying to make them clear and coherent, keep everything in context so that it's easy for people to comprehend and take with them and Lord willing, give them hope and change their life. So a lot of effort goes into that. And you're a part of that, about, about part of that, you know, extension of that effort, just by simply sharing this video on your social medias, if you like it or hitting the like button on YouTube. And uh, I mean, that's just an easy way to help us out. So it, it hopefully get the information to other people to bless them. All right. looks like Callie J is here as well. Welcome everybody. Miss Peggy D is here. Hello and welcome. Charles Henry. Welcome. Joni Ford. Welcome. Angelo's back. Welcome. Griffin fire one Oh one. Hello and welcome. All right, everyone. So thank you for joining us. Um, real quick, if you would, everyone go, I'm going to screen share this. If I can get this on screen. Everyone go subscribe to my secondary backup channels. 
Okay, this is called Kingdom Cast. And if you go to my recommended channels on Kingdom and Context, you'll see them on the right-hand side, right over here on the right-hand side. But if not, you can just type in Kingdom Cast, and, uh, or you can go to the links below any one of these videos that you see on my video playlist, and I have the link to that actually there. And we're trying to get that to 1,000 subscribers so that I can actually live stream for my podcasts from that actual channel instead of from my main channel. So if you would help me jump, go, go over there and subscribe to that, that'd be a great blessing, as well as New Jerusalem Media. So we're about to upload some new stories and videos on that as well. All right. Thanks for being here, everybody. Let's, let's go ahead and uh, see if I can get some of these slides going. And we'll talk, as always, guys, I'm going to go over the, the main topics, the main content, and we're, we'll discuss Enoch as far as, is he alive? Is he dead? Where is he? What's going on? What, what was his lifespan like? Um, and then we'll take some questions afterwards because I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions. So, and that's why we do this. All right, so let's check it out. Here we got Enoch, first Enoch, chapter 65, verse 1 through 7. It says, and in those days, Noah saw the earth that it had sunken down. And its destruction was nigh. That means destruction was close. And he arose from there and went to the ends of the earth and cried aloud to his grandfather Enoch and said three times with an embittered voice, hear me, hear me, hear me. And I said unto him, tell me what is it that is falling out on the earth, that the earth is in such an evil plight and shaken, lest perchance I shall perish with it. And thereupon there, and thereupon there was a great commotion on the earth and a voice was heard from heaven. And I fell on my face and Enoch, my grandfather came and stood by me. And he said to me, why have you cried unto me with a bitter cry and weeping? And a command has gone forth from the presence of the Lord concerning those who dwell on the earth, that their ruin is accomplished, because they have learned all the secrets of the angels, and all the violence of the Satans, and all the powers of the most secret ones, and all the power of those who practice sorcery, the power of witchcraft, and the power of those who make molten images for the whole earth. Those molten images is what we call idolatry, you know, uh, images of wood, silver, stone, or brick. He says, and how silver is produced from the dust of the earth, and how soft metals originates in the earth. Here in verses 8 through 12 of the same chapter, it says, For lead and tin are not produced from the earth like the first. It is a fountain that produces them, and the angel stands therein, and that angel is preeminent. And after that, my grandfather Enoch took hold of me by my hand, and he raised me up, and he said unto me, Go, for I have asked the Lord of spirits as touching this commotion on the earth. And he said unto me, Because of their unrighteousness, their judgment has been determined upon, and shall not be withheld by me forever. Because of the sorceries which they have searched out and learned, the earth and those who dwell upon it shall be destroyed. And those they have no place of repentance forever, because they have shown them what was hidden, and they have they are damned. But as for you, my son, the Lord of spirits knows that you are pure, and the guiltless of this reproach concerning the secrets. And he has destined your name to be among the holy, and will preserve you amongst those who dwell on the earth, and has destined your righteous seed for both kingship and for great honors." And from your seed shall proceed a fountain of the righteous and holy without number forever. Isn't that amazing, guys? It sounds a little bit like at the very end where he's talking about the from your seed shall produce a fountain of righteous and holy without number. That sounds very similar to what we see promised Abraham in Genesis 15 and Genesis 22, right? It's because it's the same covenant promise. It's, it is the same promise. It's the same covenant they're all in. And this is what we see repeated to us in Jubilees chapter 19. I think it's verse 23. So when Abraham is blessing Isaac, excuse me, Abraham is blessing Jacob, and he mentions Enoch all the way back to Adam, um, Noah, Shem, all these guys said that they're a part of the same blessing. Okay. And so this is uh, what's unique about some of this is that he's mentioning a couple of key things within these passages where he says, um, because of their unrighteousness and their judgment has been determined upon and shall not be withheld by me forever. 
okay, so why would he even possibly try to say that? How how could what what does Enoch have to do with any of this stuff, right? And no, like many of the uninformed critics try to claim, he is not the son of man. He's not anything more than just a regular person. And but he's been given because of his great obedience, he's been given a, a priesthood. And so we're going to go through some of those ideas. But ultimately, you know, he's not God. He's literally, as he's saying, the almighty has it's been decreed. He's just re relaying the message, you know, which what all priests were supposed to be able to faithfully do. And this is what Enoch is doing to Noah at this moment, trying to encourage him. Now, a lot of people may be asking, wait a minute. How is Enoch and Noah are even alive at the same time? Oh, my gosh. The, the book of first Enoch must be fake. This is crazy. <laughs> no, it, they're they're both alive, and I'm going to show you with the timeline how that how that works because it's it's just simple. It's just because people don't study the Book of Enoch, and they it's hard for them to wrap their mind around things. Um, so it's we'll we'll go over the verses here in just a minute with with actual timelines of all the patriarchs' ages. So let's remember, guys, and the Book of Jubilees, and I'm going to try to pull this up on screen real quick. Jubilees chapter four it tells us that Enoch was uh, taken into the garden. But real quick, let's read the, the brief description that we get of who Enoch was in a list of patriarchs, their life and their death in Genesis chapter 5. This will be verses 18 through 24. It said, Jared lived 162 years, and he became the father of Enoch. And then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was found not, or he was not found, for God took him. All right, so in the context of, of this, there's three things here that people greatly get tripped up on. And the first one is it says that Enoch walked with God. Well, we get a description of that in 1 John chapter 2. Right, four, four through nine. If someone is actually going to be walking with God, they need to be doing the commandments of God. So this is not this is not literally mean that a man in mortal flesh is walking next to the Almighty, or what the Book of Enoch refers to him as the, the Lord of Spirits. Okay, so a, a regular man cannot just hang out in his flesh and walk next to the Creator. That's never been possible because the Scripture tells us that in uh, Exodus chapter thirty-two, or excuse me, is it yeah thirty-two, where Yahweh tells Moses, no flesh can see him and live, right? You just can't hang out close to him and just hang out with him and walk with him. That's why even when he tried to pass by, he had to hide Moses in the cleft of the rock so that he would be in some regard shielded from the true power and presence of the, of the, the Almighty. Um, but the idea in the book of First Enoch, for many of you that have listened to us explain First Enoch in honor of kings, that you've or you've maybe read it yourself, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought in chapter 15 he sees the throne of God, and he, and he sees the Almighty. Like, how, how in the world... Is he not? How? Why are you saying he can't walk next to him? Well, because that was a vision. These, these are what they're why they're called visions, where they are seeing stuff, and they're not literally physically there, but it's a vision where they're seeing things in heaven that's being revealed to them. So this is how the Father can communicate and let mankind see stuff that's in heaven, but man's physical body doesn't have to be up there in heaven because it physically can't, as we've tried to explain in great detail. Also, in the same chapter of First Enoch, fifteen. The Father, the Almighty, explains to Enoch that the things that are created and born in the heaven above, above the firmament where we live, that layers, those layers of the firmament, those layers of heaven, those spiritual beings, those angels that are created up there, they have to live up there. They're not supposed to come down and live here. Everything created on the earth where we live, 
we're intended to live here and we cannot traverse up there. That's does not work like that. Okay. So many people are going, but Sean, wait a minute. You just read verse 24. It said that God took him. Well, we're going to go over the language of that. We're going to explain it. We're going to go into the actual Greek and the Hebrew. And we're going to show you um, what it's, what it's saying. And it's, it's really bad translations, which causes a lot of people to get really tripped up. So this is a brief idea here that he is saying that Enoch walked with God. That means he kept the commandments. That's why he's chosen and faithful. He's going to be what we're going to read from Jubilees 4, why he gets the priesthood and why he can make that statement to Noah in Enoch 65, where he says, I can't withhold this judgment forever. Okay. Because he is ministering in his priesthood where he was taken to. And we're going to explain this real quick. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. He was not found for God took him. We're going to explain that language. God took him from the actual original languages here in just a minute. So this is the context of where, why it means God took him all the days of Enoch is in the same breath where it's talking about. And then God took him. He was found not. So it's not, I'm, I'm putting forward here to you that it's not saying that he just lived 165 days or 365 days. I'm going to put forward to you that he lived a lot longer than that. And I'll show you with, with that several passages but this is just in the context of, of briefly stating in Genesis 5 that he that when before God took him, he was here 365 days. Okay, so let's keep going to another Jubilee chapter 4, 16 through 19. It says, in the 11th Jubilee, Jared took himself a wife, and her name was Baraka, the daughter of Razayal, a daughter of his father's brother. And in the fourth week of this Jubilee, she bare him a son in the fifth week and in the fourth year of the Jubilee. And he called his name Enoch. And he was the first among men that are born on earth who learned writing and knowledge and wisdom and who wrote down the signs of heaven according to the order of their months in a book. And that men might know the seasons of the years according to the order of their separate months. Quick pause, guys. Whenever you see in the book of Jubilees, and it talks about one of the characters that it's explaining, they learned writings. That is always a hint that it's explaining to you that they were being taught into a priesthood, that they learned writings. Okay. Now, the priesthood can still be carried out because it can it can be expressed and remembered and and like I said it's um he says it's one he was one of the first he was says he was the first among men that are born on the earth who learned writing knowledge and wisdom because like I've said before he was literally given all these tablets from heaven he read them he transposed them he wrote them down that's why he's often called a scribe and then he passed that information on to man everyone before him leading back to Adam they were passing down information they had they had also read in the heavenly tablets as we explained uh, several weeks ago. But as far as a gentleman that uh, seven generations later that actually was making his own books, that's what it's talking about here. Okay. So this is where uh, this gentleman is actually, this Enoch character is actually uh, going to be receiving information from angels and through visions. And he's going to be trying to express that to mankind to get them to repent. And then also to forewarn them of everything that's going to befall them throughout all of the history of mankind. And this is the fragments that we have compiled in the book that we call first Enoch today. And it goes on to say, and he was the first to write a testimony and testify to the sons of men among the generations of the earth and recounted the weeks of the Jubilees and made known to them the days of the earth of the years and set in the order of the months and recounted the Sabbaths of the years as we made them. Uh Oh, wait a minute. Is he not teaching Sabbaths? Is he not keeping the Sabbath and teaching the Sabbath? Looks like he is guys. And what was and what will be, he saw in a vision of his sleep as it will happen to the children of men throughout the generations until the day of judgment. He saw and understood everything and he wrote his testimony. And he placed the testimony on earth for all the children of men and for the generations. And it goes on to say in verse 20 through 23, And in the twelfth jubilee, in the seventh week thereof, he took himself a wife, and her name was Edna, the daughter of Danel. We, you know, this is interesting because we actually have, 
when we were doing our um, Honor of Kings series in season one, and we were reviewing the Book of Enoch, and I think we did the first like, man, we did the first what sixty three chapters, sixty three chapters, I think. Um, that people would ask us, and people still ask us, still write us letters and ask us, how in the world in the Book of Enoch? I think it's in chapter. Um, I want to say it's in chapter nine. It mentions the land of Dan. And so people go, how in the world is there a land of Dan? I mean, D Dan, the son of Jacob, wasn't even born yet. That's hundreds of years later. After the flood, boom, Enoch must be false. No, guys. Very common for you to for you to name a, a territory after whoever's the patriarch of that territory. Here, we have a daughter of Dan L, right? So the daughter of a guy named Dan L. So it's very common that you would it, you would find a territory named in a similar fashion after the patriarch of that territory. So this is why we see, um, like in later on in uh, Chronicles and everything, you, you have Zion, which they renamed the city of David since he conquered it. Does that make sense? Stuff like that. You, you see it all throughout the scriptures. It was a common cultural thing to name a town after a kid you liked or ever. In fact, Cain, you know, in, in Genesis chapter four, it said that Cain went off and uh, had children and he built a city and he named it after his son Enoch. So this is not Cain's Enoch we're reading about. This is a different lineage. This is a different person. This is a, a, a son named Enoch that came through the line of Seth. Okay. So this is where, and he says he was more over with the angels of God, these six jubilees of years. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to back up. I think I, I don't want people to get lost. I'll start at the beginning. He says, in the 12th jubilee, in the seventh week thereof, he took to himself a wife, and her name was Edna, the daughter of Danel, the daughter of his father's brother. And in the sixth year, in this week, she bare him a son and called his name Methuselah. And he was more over with the angels of God, these six jubilees of years, and they showed him everything which is on the earth and in the heavens, the rule of the sun, and he wrote down everything. Now, guys, the he, the pronoun that it's speaking of in this passage is not talking about Methuselah. It's just explaining that Enoch got married to Edna. They had a child named Methuselah. Now, what most people think is that they, they combine Jubilees 4 and then Jubilee, or at least this particular verse in Jubilees 4, and then they combine Genesis 5 and they think, oh, my goodness. Um, Enoch had Methuselah at age 65 and then he went to be with the angels for 300 years and that's how you get 365 so how did Methuselah learn righteousness who raised Methuselah so what that theory and that that uh, surface level connecting does is implies that Methuselah was raised without Enoch as his dad we're going to show that how that's not correct okay it says, and he testified to the watchers. That's Enoch. He testified to the watchers. We see this in the book of First Enoch, where he literally goes to them and says, the Father's going to judge you, and here's how. Who had sinned with the daughters of men, for these had begun to unite themselves so as to be defiled with the daughters of men. And Enoch testified against them all. And he was taken from amongst the children of men, and we conducted him into the Garden of Eden in majesty and honor. And behold, there he writes down the condemnation and judgment of the world and all the wickedness of the children of men. This is in, in Jubilees 4. So guys, when we see that it says that they took him into the Garden of Eden, many people think, well, how in the world can that happen? Wasn't Adam kicked out? How? This is because the garden was is in Hebrew. That word garden means a walled off structure. So this is something that is still on the ground. That's why an angel was set at the face of it or at the entrance of it to guard the way to the tree of life. Because so men couldn't get back in. What's the difference here? Well, if you read in the book of first Enoch, it, it tells you that the tree of life was relocated to another place between the time of Adam being alive and making this mistake and then Enoch being born. 
So by the time you've got Enoch being conducted back into the Garden of Eden so that he could do his priesthood duty, which is judgment. And this is a this takes the, the you know, the the understanding of what a priest would be in Scripture. And he was a judge because he was supposed to know the law. So that's way that's how he could discern and judge what is right, what's wrong amongst cases, amongst people who's being guilty of transgression and who's actually doing righteousness. You had to know the law to be able to stand in that place of judgment. So all the priests were a facet of judgment, just like other elders were supposed to be as well. Enoch is brought in to write down the problems, the sins, the transgressions of not just the the, te- the watchers, the rebellious angels, but also of all of mankind who followed after the, the rebellious angels and started sinning and transgressing and created chimeras and doing occultic things like building idols and drinking blood and all this horrible stuff that was going on, the beginning of the occult, basically. And that's where he went to be a judge who also was a scribe who's right, which is we see as priestly duties. We see that happening all throughout the Old Testament. Okay, that's common synonymous language. But if we don't know the priesthood and what that's about, then these words can just fly right by us when we understand how it's describing Enoch. Okay, and that's why he would be taken into the Garden of Eden because he is a priest who is going to be making atonement on the behalf of mankind for sin. This is, this is why you would conduct him. This is why he can make that claim to Noah in first Enoch 65 to say that I can't stave off this judgment forever. Right? Because the whole point of the priest was that through the, through following the, the law of God, the Torah, you would do that with a sanctuary, with an altar, with a prescribed sacrifice, with a instructed way of bringing forward the sacrifice, with an instructed and required high priest who met the requirements in his heart and in his body of, for righteousness, who had to bring forth this. And then he's going to basically be able to take that sacrifice and appease or quote unquote make atonement for the sin that's happening, but only to a certain extent, because he says, I can't stave it off forever because there it's been decreed from heaven, from the Lord of spirits, from the, from the almighty, that there will be a great flood. And that's what Noah was, was uh, concerned about in first Enoch 65 verse one, where he says in those days, Noah saw the earth that had sunk down. Its destruction was nigh. So he, he saw in a vision and uh, of his sleep, what was actually happening. So then he gets scared. He runs to the edge of the garden of Eden. That's still on the ground. And he calls out to Enoch with a loud voice to, and is asking questions because he's still alive. There's several facets of what we're doing tonight. And I know that many people are, I can already see people in the chat ready to, ready to just tear apart this teaching. You guys ready? So if you stick with me till the end, I'm going to address some translations issues that we're going to look at as well as the actual timeline. Um, but most, most of this comes from having to truly dig into understanding how the, the Torah works and then the priesthood works to those who would actually be doing the, the requirements of the law to understand that's why you have all the language of what first Enoch 65 is explaining that there was great sorcery. There was uh, idolatry being done. There was all the violence of the Satans. That's the unclean spirits that were produced from the watchers. Um, all the power, all the things, the witchcraft that was being done, all the things that they were doing to, to create a ruin on the earth as we see expounded in the first 10 chapters of first Enoch. Also, we see this briefly mentioned in Genesis chapter six, verse five, where it says all flesh should become corrupted on the earth and there was violence in their heart continually. So that's, that's like a big broad statement, but at the same time, you've got all the details given to us in Jubilees and Enoch. Okay. So let's keep going here quick. Cause we're going to, now that we have the setting, now that we know that why would Noah run to Enoch to even ask what's going on? Well, because he's got wisdom. He's the judge. He's literally hanging out with the angels. We're going to go to the timeline as far as how that's even possible. 
Um, but first, let's look at Hebrews 11.5, because this is a huge one that people think that they've got, they think that they know what happened to Enoch just from this one little verse. But let's look at it deeper. It says in Hebrews 11.5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Okay, so we've got in this short description in the New Testament, we do have a parallel that Enoch was righteous. We get that told to us in Genesis 5 as well. And then we get that repeated abundantly in First Enoch and also Jubilees. But let's look deeper at the Greek and see, is this a good translation into the English? Because if you guys don't understand, if you guys never heard me talk about the book of Hebrews, it is notorious for translator bias and insertion. There is a ton of words that are inserted into the English translation of the book of Hebrews that really make people struggle with understanding that book and really messes with a lot of people's theology. The word that's used for taken up that we just read from, from that Hebrews 11, five and God took him up. That word in the Greek is uh strong 3346 meta It's, it's hard to say. Um, met, met, met And it is to transfer or to change to transfer or to change, to go from one place to another, to go over to another party. And if we look behind the actual English text into the uh, the textual analysis, we see from the Greek that it actually is translated as a word called translated. And this is where some some uh, like old KJV and some different uh, translations of the Bible, it'll actually use the word that Enoch was translated. And so therefore they, they ascribe that to the rapture theory where they think that word means he was taken up, right? That's why the modern translation that we just read inserts the terminology, God took him up. But as you can see from the text behind this, behind the scene, that's not even what it actually says. So this is the text of Hebrews 11, five. It says by faith, Enoch was taken up. No, Enoch was translated. He was transferred. He was taken from one place to another. Nowhere in the actual Greek does it actually say he was taken up. And this is where people think that, oh, he's in heaven. It says he was taken up. He was translated. That's not, for one, that's not what the word translated originally meant. That's the modern vernacular that's been imposed onto it, like a new definition that's been imposed onto it from preachers who preach a rapture theory. Okay. So here is an easy concept to show you just from the text that anyone can look up from the Greek by faith Enoch was translated. And that word in the Greek literally means transferred from one place to another. So if we actually put that proper word in there instead of what the translators thought it was saying, and we just put the actual direct Greek translated word in there. It says Hebrews 11, 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He was not found because God translated him. He transferred him to another place. For he obtained the witness that before his being translated, he was pleasing to God. Now, can we find any kind of validation or synonymous idea in Scripture to this idea without going to the book of Enoch or Jubilees? Yes, we can. It's in Genesis 5, verse 24, the one I already read, but instead of reading the Masoretic, we just look in the Greek Septuagint. And it says, Enoch was well-pleasing to God and was not found because God translated him. Jubilees 4, 24 through 26. And on account, so we're going back to Jubilees now, okay? We, we are, Jubilee's already told us that they conducted him in the Garden of Eden because of his great behavior, because he was doing the law of God and teaching righteousness. And he's going to be made a priest, and he's going into the Garden of Eden and for a purpose, okay? 
verse 24 through 26, and it says, And on account of it, God brought the waters of the flood upon all the land of Eden. For there he, Enoch, was set as a sign that he should testify against all the children of men, that he should recount all the deeds of the generations until the day of condemnation. That's the flood, by the way. And he burnt the incense of the sanctuary, even sweet spices, acceptable for the Lord on the mount. For the Lord has four places on the earth, the Garden of Eden, the Mount of the East, and this mountain on which you are today, Mount Sinai, and Mount Zion, which will be sanctified in the new creation for a sanctification of the earth. Through it will be the will the earth be sanctified from all its guilt and its uncleanness throughout the generations of the world. All right, so look in verse 24 and 25. It says, And he, Enoch, burnt the incense of the sanctuary, even sweet spices acceptable before the Lord on the mount. Well, as we've talked about in the past, guys, this you're sitting there going, but wait a minute, how in the world? What, how was he? Like I said, he went in there for a priestly duty. So many people are asking, well, how? What kind of? I didn't know there was a sanctuary inside the, the Garden of Eden. And yes, there is. It's actually told to us um, in the Book of Jubilees as well. Let me pull it on screen for you real quick. So we have here when Adam and Eve are getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. It says um, on the day that they left that Adam burnt, um, it says on the day on which Adam went forth from the garden, he offered as a sweet savory an offering, frankincense, gobblum, and stacti, and spices in the morning with the rising of the sun from the day when he covered his shame. So this is, him, oh, I'm sorry, hang on one second. Yeah. So this is um, an offering that he's offering on this same sanctuary that was in the garden before he leaves because he also was being instructed in the priesthood ideas. Okay. This is why it says earlier up that the angels were teaching them everything. Um, he and his wife were in the garden and it says, and we instructed them to do everything that's suitable for tillage. So, and part of that is a priestly duty of first fruits. Okay. So let's, we're, we're going there. A lot of people are like, wait a minute, how's that? How is that a connection? Let's look at what first fruits is about in relation to uh, a priesthood. We already have Deuteronomy chapter 18 tells us that the priests take part and eat part of the first fruit offering. Okay. So let's look at, let me pull this away. And we'll go back to our slides real quick. And let's look at what Enoch, uh, where'd it go? Um, all right, just keep that in your mind because I actually it's it's a slide after the timelines. So I want to go over the timelines first because a lot of people are probably trying to figure out how I'm making the claim that Enoch was still alive during the days of Noah. All right. So I'm trying to I'm trying to do this in a in an organized fashion to walk you through the process to answer all your questions. I know I'm not going to be able to accomplish that because a lot of people are, you know, that not only is there a learning curve of what I'm just explaining, but a lot of folks are going to have questions regardless. Ultimately, what have we have established so far? And I'm going to show with the timeline and with the following, the last slides here, I'm going to show and validate everything that we're talking about. We've, we've got Enoch is alive while Noah's alive. Noah's learning about the flood. He's worried about it. It's, you know, startling what he saw in a vision. Enoch explains to him, yes, this has been decreed for the world for what this is going to happen. And I am can only hold it back so long. And I'm in the Garden of Eden. And Enoch, it tells us Enoch is in the Garden of Eden doing a priesthood duty. And as not just scribe, but also um, being responsible for the communication of sins that are being happening. So he can write down condemnation or, you know, judgment. Just like he said to Noah, you, let me go back up to this slide. He tells Noah, because a priest would know. 
type of information that Noah um, will be preserved among those who dwell on the earth and is destined your, your righteous seed for both kingship and for great honors. Because he, the whole point of him being called righteous means he's doing the behavior that's been taught to him. Well, how, who taught Noah how to do the behavior of that would be considered righteous, which would be the opposite of the sorceries, the wickedness, the idolatry, the things that are mentioned in this context? Remember, who was who was Noah's father was Lamech. Lamech's father was Methuselah. Methuselah's father was Enoch. Enoch's father was Mahalalel. Jared. Jared's father was Mahalalel. Well, there's actually a passage in uh, I think it's Enoch chapter 84 where it, it well I'll just I'll just show you the timeline I'm getting ahead of myself guys <laughs> I get I get so excited doing this it's so much fun let's look at the timeline and before I go into the actual detailed timeline I just want to make it right up front guys I know that there are, are everyone follows a different type of timeline I know that between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint um, some of the ages are off in some of the chapters which is I've never been able to find a straight answer on which one is accurate, which one's correct. So timeline ages are approximate, regardless of the Septuagint or the Masoretic. What I'm about to show you works with either one. Okay. It does not, it will not change the concept that I'm about to portray to you. There will still be an overlap in Noah's life and Enoch's life. So let's look here. We got Adam at the top lives 930 years. Cain, he's born. 71 years after creation he lives 866 years and dies the same year as adam according to jubilees 4. we're going to go over how that is possible in part two of my discussion on serpent seed theory with zen garcia on july 3rd so be sure to join us for that abel is killed by cain approximately 28 years all right so he has a short shortest lifespan of all these guys Seth, there's a grieving period after after Abel is killed, and then Adam and Eve have another child a few years later, name him Seth. He lives 912 years. Enos is 905 years. Kenan, Kenan is 910 years. All these are born successively after each other. Mahalalel, 895 years old. Jared lived to be 962, almost as long as, as Methuselah, right? He's, he has a long lifespan. Enoch is 365 years according to traditional teachings, okay? Lamech lives 900, or excuse me, Methuselah lived 969 years. Lamech, 777 years. Noah, 950 years. And then Arphaxad, 500 years. Canaan, and then Selah, all right? So, what we see here is this is the big question in the center center of the graph with Enoch's lifespan. Did he only live 365 years? Did you guys know that he lived an additional 300 years in the garden? Do you guys remember what we looked at earlier where it says in Genesis chapter 5 where he lived uh, all the days of his life for 365 years and then God translated him? took him from one place to another. And Jubilees 4 tells us where it took him, to the Garden of Eden, and that he was in the Garden of Eden with the angels for 300 years, which is six Jubilees. Six uh, jubilee, A Jubilee of years is, is 50 years, guys. So six of those would be 300 years. So we've got once, once Enoch was taken from amongst mankind, Meaning he was for this purpose of being a priest inside the garden because that's where this sanctuary was. And that's where he was going to hang out with the angels and he's going to mediate. He's 
getting a ton of information as well, but he's actually staving off the flood for X amount of time. He's, he's making atonement on behalf of the few righteous. Remember, you guys remember in Genesis chapter uh, 18 when uh, the three angels appear to Abraham and then the two of them go off to Sodom and Gomorrah down to the plain of the five cities and then back up on the, you know, in, in the landscape above. You had Adam, excuse me, you had Abraham talking with the Romanian angel and they had this conversation about, well, Abraham's like, man, if you sh what if there's 50 righteous in that city? Would you still destroy it? And then God, through the angel, is explaining, yeah, no, I would not destroy it if there were 50 righteous. And then there's this, this weird bargaining conversation that happens all the way to the point where Abraham keeps asking, well, what if there's 30? What if there's 25? What if there's 20 people there? What if there's 10? What if there's just five people there? Would you still destroy it if there were truly five righteous people there? But there wasn't five righteous people there. <laughs> Right. There was there was not. That's why even barely Lot and his two daughters got out. And then then you see their behavior right afterward, or at least Lot's behavior. And you start to think maybe Lot was you know the only righteous guy there under some very, very lenient definition of righteousness. But essentially. This is the same idea here, right? You've got this this idea of a priest talking to the angels of God and saying, hey, Maybe you wouldn't spare it if there was enough righteous people there. Like you would, you would hang on and not destroy everything. It's the same premise that Enoch is doing in the garden, ministering before the Lord in the presence of the angels in the garden at this sanctuary, which is a structure that's inside the Garden of Eden. Because the Garden of Eden wasn't just a, a backyard garden; it was a massive land area that had, was walled off with these massive crystalline firmament, firmament style walls. The same. That's why it's later taken up into heaven. It comes back down, enlarged, and made better as the New Jerusalem. It was an actual landmass that was its own enclosed area, its own you know cordoned off, uh, walled off area. Enoch is taken into that place to minister as a priest. What does a priest do for people? He makes atonement. He mediates on behalf of people who are faulty, are faulty, and the perfect Father. So Enoch is being taken into the Garden of Eden to mediate, and he's like. I, this, this judgment has been decreed, this vision that you saw, Noah, and I could only withhold it so long because at some point my priesthood is going to end and this judgment will take place. So what we're seeing here is this lifespan of Enoch is actually 300 more years once he's translated from amongst men, once he's taken from one place to another. He's taken from amongst mankind and he's secluded, so to speak. He's still with the angels, actually, but he's secluded from the rest of regular men into the garden to live amongst the angels for 300 years. See, most of you guys are already doing the math in your head. That's 665 years that we have as a total lifespan for Enoch between Genesis, Jubilees, and, and the book of First Enoch. 665 years. Now, here's where a lot of people are going, but wait a minute. What about Noah? Was he already alive? What, what's going on there? Yes. So between, if you do the, do the math and you add up when Noah was born compared to how long Enoch lived, truly lived, you have a 234-year approximate, 234-year overlap. So this is more than enough time for First Enoch 65 to be exactly how we read it. N Noah is being shown visions from God to be prepared for what's coming about the flood, and he runs to the edge of the Garden of Eden to talk to, to Enoch, to get answers. And Enoch is alive and available to, to talk with him and explain what's happening. Jubilees chapter 7, 35 through 39. You guys remember what does a priest do? A priest is, eats the part of the first fruits offering. That's a part of Deuteronomy 18. That's a part of the, the priest 
priestly, or excuse me, I think it's Numbers 18. Uh, it's a part of the uh, the priestly duty is to eat part of the first fruit offering. We see first fruits being gathered as residue to put aside by Adam from Jubilees chapter 3. We also see first fruits being offered by Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4 because they were teaching the law to their children. Jubilees chapter 7, 35 through 39, and behold, you will go and build for yourselves cities and plant in them all the plants that are upon the earth. And moreover, this is the father. I'm sorry. Let me give you a little context. This is the father talking to Noah right after the flood. Okay. He says, behold, you will go and build for yourself cities and plant in them all the plants that are upon the earth. And moreover, all fruit bearing trees for three years, the fruit of everything that is in, that is eaten will not be gathered. And in the fourth year, its fruit will be gathered, accounted holy, and they will offer the first fruits acceptable before the most high God who created heaven and earth and all the things. Let them offer in abundance the first of the wine and oil as first fruits, and the altar of the Lord who receives it. And what is left, let the servants of the house of the Lord eat before the altar which receives it. This is talking to Noah, and it's talking about a house of the Lord and the servants who minister therein. That's a priesthood. We see this explained in greater later when we see that, you know, in Jubilees 30-32 with Jacob, um, actually goes to a house of the Lord, and we see later Levi gets this priesthood. This is why we would see in Genesis 14, Abraham goes to a priest under the Melchizedek order who he offers bread and wine to and gives a tithe. You see what I'm saying? Because there was actually a building of some sort with an actual ministering priesthood before the Lord, and there always has been. There's always, whether it was in the garden or whether it was after the garden being established by Noah and his descendants, there was always this process. What's unique about Moses and Aaron at Mount Sinai is they have the they received the specific instructions to make in a building that ministers to the Lord, i.e., a tabernacle, that was to be replica of what's in heaven. Does that make sense? And that had not been instructed of mankind until that moment. But they still had a priesthood. They still had some sort of building they ministered in. It just wasn't instructed to be an actual replica of the one in heaven. So that, that's that's the difference there. And they're still doing the law before Moses and Aaron, as we've emphatically explained through many, many videos. So that's why you're seeing Noah being instructed by the father after the flood in Jubilee 7 to talk to take first fruits. And he says, and in the fifth year, make the release so that the release in this righteousness and, and uprightness and you shall be righteous and all that you plant shall prosper. Guys, if you're not familiar, um, tell me in the chat. Does, here's a here's a pop quiz question for tonight. Tell me in the chat, which verse, which chapter in Leviticus are we reading right now in Jubilees chapter seven? Does anybody know this question? Which chapter in Leviticus is the father instructing Noah the same instructions that we read in Leviticus concerning when you gather trees and when you bring in first fruits from those trees? Does anybody know? You guys just put that in the chat and I will let, uh, I'll keep going as I, as you think about it. And in the fifth year, NEG is saying it's Leviticus 23. Do you know, do you know what verse that is? NEG? It's not Leviticus 23, by the way. I'm just letting you know. Do you know? I just didn't know if you had a specific verse that you were curious about that you thought it would apply to in Leviticus 23. So if you guys go to Leviticus chapter 25, 
It says, The Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, in the land you have a Sabbath to the Lord, six years you shall sow your fields and prune uh, and shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. During the seventh year, the land shall have a rest. Okay, so this is where we start counting out these Sabbath years. And he starts going and explaining um, when you start planting, you're going to have certain years that you grow and certain years that you let it rest, according to the Jubilee year, as we know. And this is what introduces the main context of what we're going to get here in a few minutes when you, because remember, there are no chapter breaks and there's no, there's no verses uh, broken or there's no verse breaks, if you will, in the original Hebrew. But if you go over to Leviticus 26, you start looking at when they, um, he's continuing to talk about the same thing about planting and sowing and reaping. And we find the actual verse for you. Lucas 26 is big. It's a big channel, big chapter. Um, yes, trippy, trippy 2776, Leviticus 2313 is about the grain offering. Checking out the chat here, guys. Yes, NEG, the 25 is a land Sabbath. Leviticus 11 is dietary. That's a little bit different. Do you guys remember when it talks about the planting of the trees and how you're supposed to wait several years before you eat of the, of the trees? Do you guys remember that verse? This is what we were just reading from the slide. He talks about the fruit bearing trees and when you plant them. Yes. Yeah. You got to wait three years. Because Leviticus 23 is about all the feast days. And it, yes, it does talk about first fruits, but I, I'm, I was asking, I apologize if, if we got confused, I was asking about the trees when you're to reap from the trees. So you guys let me know if you find that verse. All right. Leviticus, um, Someone else said Leviticus 23 again. Okay, there it is. We got West Blaze. He found it. It's Leviticus 19, 23. So you have the land Sabbaths that are required for, for building and plant, excuse me, for planting food. But specifically, when you come to the trees, in Leviticus uh, 19, 23, let me pull it over for everyone to look at together. All right, Westblaze Music found it for us. It says, And when you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year, to eat of its fruit, that its, that its yield may increase, for I am the Lord your God. So then we know that, obviously, they're not supposed to reap from it or plant on the seventh year as well. So this is where, this is exactly what we're seeing, guys, being instructed to Noah after the flood, by the father and to teach it to his descendants thereafter. Okay. This is where we see, and uh, he he's teaching the commandments of, to his descendants in Genesis or his Jubilee seven verse uh, 28, I believe, but this is a little, this is a few verses after verse 28. And he goes and he says, and in the fifth year, you shall make the release so that you release it in righteousness and uprightness and you shall be righteous and all that you plant shall prosper for this did Enoch. 
the father of your father, command Methuselah, his son, and Methuselah, his son, Lamech, and Lamech commanded me all the things which your father commanded him. So it's right here. It's telling us that Enoch not only kept the law, but he kept literally the laws for trees and for planting and the Sabbaths for first fruits. So they had way more instruction than we originally think they had. Right. And then he goes on to say, and it says, I also will give you commandment, my sons, as Enoch commanded his son in the first Jubilees while still living the seventh in his generation. He commanded and testified to his son and to his son's sons until the day of his death. So we got Enoch's total lifespan of 665 years actually overlaps with Noah's lifespan. He dies. He actually dies. So he has a day of death, guys. Lived 665 years. So what what do we why why would we why would we think that Enoch is still alive after thousands of years? Well, it's often because of Hebrews 11:5. Because people think that God took him up. You see how poor translations were really you know, they really mess with your perception of how things work. Now, even if you didn't dig into the text from the Septuagint in Genesis 5, even if you didn't dig into the Greek from Hebrews 11:5, even if you didn't, if you've never read Jubilees or Genesis, excuse me, uh, First Enoch or Jubilees, if you've never read those books, and you were just reading Hebrews eleven by itself, you should be able to. Hopefully, a red flag would pop up, where you would say, "Wait a minute, Hebrews eleven five is it really telling me that Enoch was taken up?" And and the traditional interpretation of that is that he was taken up into heaven, and that's where he is. And people use that as a yeah, he's still alive. He's going to be one of the two witnesses and all that. But even if we didn't have all this other stuff I showed you tonight, guys, and we just were dealing with the chapter itself of Hebrews chapter 11, and we looked for the furthering context in that chapter, what would we find? Because we got chapter 5, talks about Enoch. But if you go all the way down here, it says in 30, at the very end of the chapter, it says that all these, and it's speaking about everyone that came before this verse 39, including verse 5, which is Enoch, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God has provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. You cannot ascend to heaven as Jesus, even Jesus tells us, right? No one, no man has ascended to the heaven except, except the man who's actually come down from heaven. That's him. Everyone is waiting for the resurrection. Nobody can actually go to heaven before the resurrection at the last trumpet on the day of the Lord. This is when Yeshua returns. It's Revelation 11, 15 through 20. It's, uh, or excuse me, 11 through 15. It is 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 18. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15, 51. The great trumpet. It's Isaiah chapter 27, verse 11 and 12. It's this massive trumpet blow, which is the last trumpet of Revelation that Yeshua and his angels return. And there's a group of angels that come and pick up the resurrected. Because we've been perfected at that moment. We've been raised to incorruptible bodies as we're promised in the covenant. And we're given that moment of perfection being made whole, right? Whereas no one, no one has. So the writer of Hebrews writing this letter after Yeshua ascended to heaven is telling you that everyone he just mentioned in chapter 11, all of them have not been made perfect yet. And when they are made perfect, it's going to happen with us, meaning the guy who's writing the letter. When's he going to be made perfect? It's only at the day of the Lord, the last trumpet. So this is why, even if you didn't have all these other these tools that I tried to show you guys tonight, 
You just need the context of Hebrews chapter 11, which should give you a huge red flag and hopefully, you know, give you a that investigative feel to try to dig deeper into the rest of like, wait a minute, what does it mean to be made perfect? You start digging down that rabbit trail of what that means and how that's used in the New Testament. And you realize it's talking about the resurrection. Paul talks about it all over his letters. So, and also Hebrews chapter 10 mentions it as well. And it's, I mean, it's, it's everywhere guys, because why, what do we know from Hebrews nine twenty six? It is appointed man once to die. And then the judgment, you can't see what I'm saying at that quote unquote judgment, we're going to get resurrected immortal bodies. We're going to get the, the kind of body that Yeshua received when he was resurrected, one that's eternal, one that we will never sin again. The law of God's written on our heart. All the commandments are written on our heart. We'll never fail to do them again. So this is where we see a lot of teachings in modern day churches that just take stuff way out of context from one verse, Hebrews 11.5, and create an entire narrative around it to say that this dude's still alive. He's been alive for thousands of years. Oh, he must be chilling in heaven somewhere. Yeah, he's probably going to come back as one of the two witnesses or something. Guys, it, he, he's, he, he, was a, he was a guy that became a priest. Um, yes, he had some special circumstances by being able to go into the garden and minister there, but that's a job he had to go do. It's to perform for 300 years there. So he's, he's, a, he's a regular dude that was, uh, had a good heart. That means he loved mankind and the father chose him to go and be a priest who was a, a priest was supposed to love mankind because you are selflessly sacrificing your personal life to go and mediate for on behalf of men who, you know, many times don't deserve it. See what I mean? So he's a, he was a normal dude that was very faithful and obedient. He was taken into the garden because it was still on the ground to minister on behalf of corrupted mankind before the flood. Then he had a day when he actually died. And, and from everything I've researched and put together, it's before the flood. He had, a, he had an actual day of his death, as we're literally told from uh, Jubilee 7.38. Okay? So, I, uh, like I said, I know, that, I know um, that for many of you that are watching this, it, you know, it may be bursting a bubble that you've, you've held on to for a long time. And I apologize. I, don't, I can't really do anything about that. But at least I've put together some things tonight that you can go and test for yourself. And you can try to see, you know, wait a minute, is this, uh, here's some information I may have never seen before. How do I line it up? You know, what you go, I've put on screen for you, you know, the meanings of words and where to find them in the passages or what translation of why, to, how to, how to compare the two. So, you know, it's one of those deals. Um, hopefully it's going to, to have the truth will propel you forward so that you can learn the scriptures better as opposed to holding on to the wrong paradigm about something which would taint or which would like give you the, the wrong perception or the wrong lens going forward, trying to understand other scriptures. So that's why we're always digging in for context for clarity. So I'm going to look in the, the comments and let's see if we have any questions that anyone would like to ask. Looks like there's conversation in here about the trees and how science backs up uh, the idea of not eating fruit from the tree in the first three, four years. So that's just, you know, validating. Uh, Blue Dove, I, are you talking about, what book are you talking about? Are you talking about the color-coded context Bible that I, that I mentioned the other day or my actual book about Noah? I'm not sure which, which one you're referring to. I, um, okay, looks like we have a question. 
from Vicky Lott, and she's asking, is rapture and resurrection the very same? Yes, <laughs> actually. Yeah, the, the harpazo, that Greek word in First Thessalonians 4 that's been used there, is uh, yes, it's the word for snatching away, right? When you're snatched away and you're, you're brought away. And that's what the angels do with everyone that's resurrected on the day of the Lord is they come and retrieve us. This is Matthew 13, 30. It's the, the father's taking the wheat into the barn, right? So his servants, the angels come out to gather the wheat, to take it into the barn. And that's what happens. That's us being quote unquote snatched away, right? We're taken away as Isaiah 26, 20 says to hide in our rooms so that it, that means going up to the new Jerusalem to paradise so that we can be away from the wrath of the lamb. So that's what we're pulled away from. That's what we're quote unquote snatched away from. If that makes any sense, because like I've said before, with the return of Yeshua with the warrior angels of Matthew 24, 29, that's him coming back to do battle. And we can't be anywhere around that, right? There's going to be, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billion or more resurrected people that are being taken up to the new Jerusalem and he's coming down. That's why first lesson is 4, 13 through 18 says that we meet him in the air. It is coming. He's coming down with warrior angels to take out the wicked and to fight the battle of Armageddon and to destroy the beast, the false prophet to enchain Satan, to stop wickedness on the earth. And we're not going to be on the ground for that process during that battle time. We're going to be hidden away in our rooms and protected. This is how we're passed over the wrath of the lamb. This is the ultimate fulfillment and symbology of the actual Passover. This is the Yeshua is our Passover lamb, and we are passed over from the wrath of the lamb, if that makes any sense. So it's, yes, the literal word harpazo in the Greek, that people have created this entire separate narrative about a, tri or, you know, pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, you know, all that stuff. It's literally, literally the same word for the resurrection. It's just a, a different use of the, instead of saying you'll be resurrected, just saying you're being snatched away because yeah, it happens quickly. You're, the angels are trying to protect you. You're being snatched away. Um, just as Yeshua says, the coming of the son of man will be like lightning from the east to the west. So they're coming quickly. Uh, just like in revelation chapter one, when he says, behold, I come quickly and preterism thinks that that means that it was going to happen, you know, at AD 70, um, he, the word is tacos in the Greek in, in Revelation 1, where he says, behold, I come quickly, meaning I come with speed and quickness, not with immediacy of like, this is going to happen next week or tomorrow. Not that type of quickly, not I'm coming soon, but I come quickly, right? It's like he says, coming to the, man, the coming of the Son of Man is like flash of lightning in the sky. That's the quickness that he's going to be showing up with. So we have to be snatched away with the quickness. You see what I mean? And, uh, and you know, that it won't hurt us in any regard because we'll have you know resurrected glorified bodies we'll be able to move like the angels like yeshua can do so we'll be able to move at super fast speeds if we need to all right so let's see i think we have another question here here in obey is asking why do you believe the two who do you believe the two witnesses are um i do not know i apologize i don't know i just definitely know it's not enoch and it's not elijah because both of those are dead maybe i'll do another show in the future on elijah's death but they're all dead i apologize let me see here. If you have any questions, um, I think I saw some questions earlier up. So if you have any questions, guys, please put them in all caps. All right. It's a lively chat tonight. Yeah. I'll do Scarborough House of Prayer, John Samuel, I'll do that. I'll do a show on that in the future. Yes, Elijah's not alive either. He's dead. 
Um, remember, guys, Hebrews nine twenty six. Point of man wants to die. Now, a lot of people think that they're gonna, you know, these these two dudes are still alive, and that's they're just being reserved somewhere to be the two witnesses. I no, I'll I'll do a video in the future on the two witnesses as well, but I do not believe that they are that they're Elijah or Enoch. So, <laughs> all right, so. Um, Kelly J is, is saying the ones who are honored to be raised or changed in the twinkling of an eye to receive a resurrected body in a royal priesthood. You can't be defiled by dead bodies during the day of the Lord. Maybe that's yeah, that's definitely a part of it. But it's also just the acknowledgement that we are um, will be, you know, alive. You're, you're, you're getting a resurrected body again. You're spotless, man. Like you're you've just been brought back into the game. <laughs> you've got a new body again and you cannot. Uh, I mean, there's nothing in Scripture that says that. You can't be affected by the stuff that's about to happen. You see what I mean? Like, think about it like this. If the angels that come back with Yeshua are rounding up Satan, this character, this incredibly uh, strong angel, and they have physical chains, right? And what have, we, what have we talked about Satan being a spiritual being, which means he's not made of dirt like mankind. He's made of water and spirit, so he's made of different chemistry. And... In Enoch chapter 54, it talks about the special chains that are being made to bind Satan on the day of the Lord. And we see that, you know, Michael grabs this great chain in Revelation 20, verse 1 through 2, and he binds Satan with this thing. And we have just been resurrected and been given a body made of water and spirit, just like angels. So that means whatever weapons that the uh, angels are going to be using when they come back with Yeshua can affect spiritual bodies. See what I'm saying? We don't need to be around any of that stuff. We need to be protected, hidden away in our rooms because we, you know, we're not going to battle guys. That's the angels are coming for battle. So this is, uh, it's all very real. It's very real stuff. So just like the, the angelic body that broke, helped Peter get out of prison in the book of acts, you know, and he can open the gate for him. Just like angels can help people grab stuff, eat food with Abraham. They can do things, right? Uh, go on a go on a journey with Tobit. So just like angels can do stuff, they have physical real bodies, and we're going to have that same type of real physical body where we can just like Thomas touched Yeshua's body, right, and feel real physical body. It's just made of different chemistry, so it has it has different capabilities, but it still can be affected by things, right? Just like these uh, incredibly powerful angels coming back with their own weapons of warfare to battle spiritual beings right all the not just the, the beast and the false prophet but satan himself as well as all these other things which they look at the shadim the specters that come up out of the pit in revelation 9 that they're going to have to deal with as well so this is what enoch chapter 54 also explains to you that these chains and these things are made not just for satan but also everyone that subjected himself to satan these other spiritual beings that we see in jubilees chapter 10 are these unclean spirits so guys it it's a it's there's so much more to the reality and the you know the physical tangible real reality of scripture than what we've been taught in church okay so we've got to get out of the way of all this stuff that's going to be happening we can't be here for a variety of reasons um, but that's a good thought that you had i like it all right so let's see if i can see another one real quick uh jacob seal is asking is the snatching away equal to that thing that happened to philip uh, very possibly yeah very possibly. And because it's just a transfer from one place to another or a, a snatching away, but the, 
the context of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is the resurrection on the day of the Lord at the last trumpet. And that's where you're not, you're not taken from one place to another horizontally, you're taken vertically. So there is context to the use of that word. It's, it doesn't mean the same thing in every context. It just means taking from one place to another, but look for the context to see how it's being used and where you're being taken to. All right, here in Obey is asking, do you believe there's a place or of paradise or torment for those who die or just the grave? Do you believe there is a place of paradise or torment for those who die or just the grave? No, uh, if you will go to, um, I'll put it on screen here for you. It's our honor, for those who honor die, of kings, just and it's season one. We do an entire breakdown of Sheol, Tartarus, and the prison of stars. And let me pull this up for you real quick. The coincidence. It's going to be, I think it's episode seven. Um, yeah, it's episode seven. I'll drop it in the chat for you, and you can check this out. And one question. Give me just one second. It's taking its time. All right, here in Obey, I'm dropping this in the chat. This is a Honor of Kings. So seven, Sheol, Tartarus, and uh, Prison of Stars. And we go over lots of scripture to explain this idea, both from the Book of Enoch as well as the traditional canon of 66 that we use here in America. So check this out, and you'll you'll have a good hour and a half to go through scriptures and, and research this idea, okay? James Carter is asking, uh, a rhetorical question, I guess. Do we have to have an answer for every single mystery? He says, it's a bit scary knowing all the stuff I need to unlearn. Yikes, 70 times 7. I mean, man, think about like, think about, yes, I mean, it. You, you've got to, it can be scary to, to when you start really digging in the scriptures and you start looking for context and lining stuff up and, and you start realizing just how much bad stuff all of our life and but it also helps you at least in the sense of nations because they don't know the actual story long
All right, guys. I think we're back. Sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. Um, just, you know, took us offline and we couldn't get back online. That's weird. So um, I apologize for the interruption, but technical difficulties. Can't do anything about it. I don't know if anyone can hear me. Mic check, mic check. Can anyone hear me? Mic check. All right. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I apologize. I'm not sure what I was talking about or where I was, what answer, what question I was answering, but I'll just take a couple more questions real quick. And, and we were at the end of our live stream anyway, but um, it's, it, unfortunately, I just, you know, it's so frustrating with the technology stuff. You can't, can't even control it sometimes. So, all right. I'm going to try to scroll back up and see if I can see a question. Uh, Stephen Belk is asking, and I'm guessing this is bouncing off the idea uh, from the previous question about Sheol. And it's asking about in 1 Samuel 28, Saul uh, wanted help from Samuel from the dead. Was it Samuel who actually spoke? I personally believe it was Samuel that actually spoke. Um, and actually that's, uh, I think it's in, I can't remember which additional uh, additional text that's not in the American Bible that used to be, that um, that it actually confirms that it was Samuel that spoke as well. But um, but yes, it was actually Samuel that spoke to him. In fact, what Samuel said became true. Like the, he he said some things that how Samuel and his sons were going to die that came true, and so um, it's it calls him Samuel in the passage. Um, as far as the writer of First Samuel acknowledges that it was Samuel, it doesn't say that they thought it was Samuel, and and it really wasn't. No, it says they saw, you know, a divine being and they and then the words came true that he knew it was Samuel, that Saul knew it was Samuel speaking to him. And the whole premise, the whole context of that conversation is un, is understood that it is Samuel. And the narrator of the text does not tell you it's not Samuel. You see what I'm saying? So what what was happening, what Sam, what Saul asked that witch and Endor to actually do is not good. Right. It was bad. But the father turn that situation around to prophesy against Saul basically is what happens. And then tell him that he's, you know, he's finally going to meet his end, which would, which had already been prophesied multiple times before um, in the book of Samuel. But that's, you know, that was like the final straw basically. All right, guys, let's see. Um, I think we have some other questions. Yeah, I got to that one. And we did get, Looks like Unbelievable Productions was asking. I don't see it, but I think you asked earlier up uh, about the Testamental Patriarchs, whether they're legit or not. Yes, we do. They're not only are they found amongst, um, not only are they found amongst the um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, but they are also previously been in different canons. Or you guys have to, like I was saying, just it's it's never okay. Let me put it the right way. So many people in the United States, we're never given a basic history class. When we go to church, we're never given a basic history class on how we got our Bible. 
where it came from, the different manuscripts that went, but the different types of canons that was involved in it, which books were not put into it, but were put in other canons that, that are in other countries, but not in the American canon. So it was an entire process by men, not by God, not by angels, not by miracles, not by some huge and miraculous event, but by just a group of men. And they grabbed some books that they understood that they thought matched up. And then they put those together that they felt was divinely inspired. And then if you, if you like, for example, there was a, a canonization meeting in um, the second century, and then they wanted to put X number of books in there. But then 200 years later, they, uh, there was another canonization meeting and they wanted to put a different books in there. Right. And take some out from 200 years earlier. You know, it's just, it depends on the men that are looking at it. Thankfully in our modern day, we have people that have went out there and found all these manuscripts. We have access to talk with other countries who have other, other collections of scriptures that they call their Bible. And we can compare and contrast and unbelievable productions. If you've never seen our honor of Kings series, that's what the whole series is dedicated to is we look at the books that other people will call, um, Deuterocanonical or apocryphal or pseudepigraphal. All of those are man-made words. And we look at them and we test them to the American canon of 66 to see if they're legitimate or not. Um, while we have not done a specific episode on the Testament 12 patriarchs, um, I can tell you from my study that I trust them as a legit writing, not just from the, from the content of what's in the actual story of the actual narratives of the text, but also from its historical uh, text the, the historical validation from the manuscripts that have been preserved over time, used by other canons, and also preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is very interesting because that gives us a direct time capsule to the first century AD. So, yeah, I would. that's why you see me quoting from them occasionally. So, all right, guys, we'll take one last question real quick. Thanks, everybody, for sticking around. I apologize for the... Uh, for the, 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 you know, the, the internet going out. All right. So rainy storm, I, I don't know if you're, I think you may be asking what I just answered, but you're saying, so if this has happened, can we trust anything in the Bible? Sincere question. Yes. This is why I don't, I don't, I've never, I don't know if you're familiar with our channel, if this is your first time visiting or uh, if you've ever just watched and never commented before, but this is why we are always talking about context. This is why we do the show, Honor of Kings, to show you how other books that were not put in the American canon have the same storyline. Their context of information matches up. It's the same stuff, the same information. That's why tonight you saw me paralleling Jubilees and Enoch and Leviticus and Hebrews and a whole bunch of other stuff because I'm showing people the context matches up in the storyline. Okay, so this is how we can understand if we have a book that one dude in the 15th century said, I don't like it and I don't want to put it in there. Let's take it out. Well, that's just one dude. You know, who, who is he? We all have our capable, our faculties. We all have the ability to read the text and and try to see is this line up with all the other texts that we have? Does this have the gospel, the kingdom of God in it, which is what the message that all the prophets and even Yeshua, the, the Messiah preached? So this is why the first two videos that I put up on Kingdom and Context and go to my beginner's playlist. If this, if you're new to the channel, go to my beginner's playlist. You'll see the first two videos I put up was about the message that Jesus preached. That is our baseline. That's our standard. That's our backdrop. Imagine like a baseball analogy. Pitcher's throwing at the catcher. And if the catcher misses the ball, the ball hits a backstop. Okay. So our backstop is Yeshua's message of the gospel, the kingdom of God. That is the same message all the prophets before him preached, even the message that you're hearing from Enoch tonight. 
So when we see another book that was either taken out of the scriptures or was put into another canon, but was never put into our canon, um, or like in the 1800s, they took 14 books out of the American canon, just two dudes. And then everyone just adopted it after that because they didn't ask questions, which was lunacy in my opinion, but that's the power of owning your own printing press. You see what I mean? So, so even when stuff like that happens, it doesn't mean we, we don't trust the Bible. We can still take, even if we just had one book out of the Bible, we can still test that book, right? For example, everyone in the New Testament didn't have a completed you know Bible. They had scrolls from the Old Testament. So how could they know the same storyline to be talking about it and write their own epistle? You see what I'm saying? Because they knew the message that Yeshua preached validated the messages of all the prophets that came before. It's the same message. It's the gospel of the kingdom of God, that God, the Almighty, is going to use his son and the priesthood of his son to enable the resurrection and to have the Garden of Eden come back down, which is called the New Jerusalem, the New Testament, so that the resurrected saints can live in his house again and forever and never be kicked out again. I just give you a bumper sticker version of the gospel of the kingdom of God, but that is essentially the big picture all the prophets from the Old Testament, including Yeshua's message and all the New Testament epistles, they all reinforce that message in one capacity or another. They're all preaching the same message, right? So this is how this is the backstop, right? To catch all the questions and all the, the discerning testing of how do we how do we know if we if they found a book in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s, like the Testament of Levi, who's part of the 12 Testament of 12 Patriarchs, how do I know if that's legit or not? Right. Well, if I don't know what the actual gospel of the kingdom was that the Messiah preached, which is recorded and validated and venerated, or what Isaiah preached, which is recorded and validated and venerated, which is the same exact message, then I don't have any sort of baseline to test some other new book that was found from history or some other book that was never put into the American canon, but was put into the Armenian canon or the Eastern Orthodox Tawahid canon. You see what I'm saying? So this is where. I said it, it. you have so many new believers in churches that have never been taught where their Bibles came from and how other Bibles were created across the world and what standard that all quote unquote scripture shares, what standard of information do they all share? And this is why we're always talking about looking for the context of things, because it helps you realize and dig in past the confusion. And you can see the gospel, of the kingdom of God is shared by all of these books that we call scripture. It's a beautiful message, right? It's what Jesus called the good news. So hopefully that helps you. Um, and please check out the New Beginner playlist uh, here on my channel. So I think it'll bless you, right? All right, guys, I appreciate it. And um, JC, last question, guys. No, yes and no. I, this is one that's still up for debate. Um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of red flags with Jasher. I really do. Not just its actual text on the in interior, but also its... Um, uh, the manuscript validation throughout history. So I, that's why you don't see us quoting from it on our channel in the last two years, basically, because we just had to make a hard decision as far as, all right, are we going to keep quoting from this book or are we going to have to, you know, set it aside and continue to test it before we don't want to lead anybody astray. That's our hardest to bring clarity and not confusion. So, all right, guys, I appreciate everyone. Thanks for sticking with us. And, um, this has been a hopefully an edifying broadcast for you to kick off your weekend. And if you're celebrating Shabbat, hopefully it gives you a lot to chew on while you rest. Just dig in, test everything I put on screen, study the scriptures. And uh, you guys are awesome. And we'll hope to see you on Monday night on Kingdom Cast.